I had to chuckle a little bit because thank you, Laura, for you know, pointing out that I tend to go long. And also in the Believe video where I say I have the power through Christ to control myself. Well, we'll see if that bears witness this morning as I'll try not to be too, too long. But I do, I am very excited about uh, the word, the message that um, Cam had read. And as we're going to jump into it, I'm proud of you, Hillcrest. We're wrapping up a 30-week series out of the Believe book. We made it. Some of you, I know, have felt as though it's been a bit of a long trek, and it kind of has. Um, But we've made it, we've come through, and I I marveled as I prepped over the last couple weeks getting ready for this sharing this morning at how well this passage is situated to just sum things up and wrap things up for us as we move on um, from belief. Um, What we're talking about today is the topic of humility, so being humble. And the key idea is simply this, that I choose to esteem others above myself. And in this passage, there's a lot going on. We're looking at the passage where Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Um, But there's three key things that I really want you to watch out for. And uh, we'll kind of go quickly through the passage. I'll try to speed things up so we're not here uh, too, too long. But there's three things I really want you to be watching for. So in John's gospel, he tells things a little bit differently. If you're reading about the Last Supper in any of the synoptic gospels, and then you jump over to uh, John's, he tells things, or a little bit differently, he gives a different, he chooses to highlight different things. And the things that he chooses to highlight, I believe, are for a very specific person. So there's three kind of ideas or themes that I want you to keep, um, be on the watch for this morning. So the very first one is... Jesus. Jesus is the most important character of all time for all time. And John is saying things about him and presenting him in a light that we don't want to miss. It's the whole reason John wrote his gospel is that we would be stirred by the stories that he tells to put our faith, our belief in Jesus Christ. And you know what? Something about 2,000 years hasn't changed the purpose of John's gospel at all. It still serves as a testimony to rally our belief and our our faith and to put it in Jesus Christ. John John, uh, comments much more on this, and he paints paints a picture of Jesus that is different than the the synoptics, than the other gospels. The picture that John paints is that you actually get to step inside Jesus' heart for a while. You get to sort of see into his mind and see the things that he's thinking, which some of the other synoptics don't really kind of capture that. Um, More than just observing Jesus' actions, you gain a sense of his motivation and his heart, connecting his thoughts with his actions with a sense of who he is as a person. Does that sound familiar to anybody? This idea of think, act, be has kind of been our slogan for the last number of months. Well, it comes comes to light brilliantly in this passage, and I'm excited to get to that. Secondly, so first we're going to pay attention to Jesus. Number two, betrayal. That's right. There should be some ooing and aahing with intrigue. Nobody tells a story like John. John's gospel highlights this cosmic battle between darkness and light. Now, of course, darkness can never overcome light, right? That is unless the light gets extinguished. And darkness is trying to do just that. 
And John brilliantly, even in these 20 verses that we're looking at, he writes in this betrayal of Jesus that is looming. And it's very, very, very exciting. Thirdly, there's a sense of movement or mission in this passage. Uh, There's a subtle instance that things cannot stay the same from this passage. Things are changing. Stuff happens here that is intended to set off a chain reaction that doesn't stop. Whereupon understanding something or experiencing something, one is now implored or urged or compelled to respond. And it has a certain logic to it. It's meant to move us to action. So over our next few moments here, we're hoping that we ourselves experience some change, some movement, that as we encounter the Word of God, that it accomplishes what only the Word of God can do, which is challenge our hearts and change us. Transformation. Well, as God is the only one who can cause transformation, why don't we take a moment just to pray uh, his blessing over the word uh, before we dive in. Jesus, you're amazing. You're wonderful. You're so great. We thank you that, God, you spoke in the beginning and things happened. They didn't hesitate. They didn't wait. They just did as you said. And God, you're still speaking. So we want to invite you into this space that as we read your word and put our attention onto you, that you would change our hearts, God. That you would transform us, not into a better version of ourselves, but into a you, into Jesus. That we would think, act, and be more like our Lord and Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we're jumping in, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to John 13, and we're, we're looking at verses kind of 1 through 20. It's so important that we don't miss this opening cup, this opening verse in John. So, John writes his book sort of with sort of with a natural break in between, and the break happens right here at chapter 13 in verse 1. And you see, for the first 12 chapters of his book, John has been really focused on Jesus's public ministry. So it's been all about Jesus sort of challenging the Jewish authorities, um, commenting sort of on these festivals and how ultimately these Jewish festivals are sort of fulfilled in who he is. And where the other synoptics want to leave you kind of guessing as to who this Jesus person is, John comes right out of the gate and makes a claim about Jesus' divinity. There's no question in John's mind throughout his book of who Jesus is. And so we see in the first 12 chapters, we see a real focus on sort of this public presentation of who Jesus is. And then something different happens. When we hit chapter 13, we enter into what they refer to sort of as the, the book of glory or the last hour. And all of a sudden, there's a shift from sort of Jesus being this public figure challenging the Jews and and commenting on the festivals to all of a sudden it being a really quaint, small crowd of just his disciples. And it kicks off with the Last Supper. Fittingly, these verses do a great job of sort of summarizing, but also summarizing all that comes next. It simply says that it was just before the Passover festival Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So sort of as a blanket summary for all of what would follow, John is painting it as that this is Jesus' great act of love for his disciples. 
We know that Jesus knew that his hour had come and he loves those who are in the world, his disciples, right till the end. Well, moving along, um, in verse 2, here is our first instance where John sort of sets up the intrigue, where we're preparing for this, you know, this final sort of last hour encounter. And here, verse 2 jumps at us. It says, The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. You see early on that evil is rallying to try and extinguish the light of God. There's this cosmic battle between good and evil, and it's raging, and the devil's strategy is starting to unfold. We know that there's someone who isn't a real believer, someone who's going to betray Jesus, is in the very midst of his closest disciples. And it kind of should act to have us on the edge of our seat. Like, is Jesus aware of this? Does he know what's going on? What's going to unfold as this story plays out? Is he aware? We're all hoping, Jesus, will you put a stop to this potential betrayer? Verses 3, 4, and 5 really need to be understood together, so we're going to read them uh, all at once here. And it goes like this. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, very important word, so he got up from the meal, took off his other clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Did you catch that? Jesus does this incredible act of humility for his disciples. But what did it come out of? Well, isn't it interesting that Jesus' decision to wash his disciples' feet is anchored in his assurance of his relationship with God? This is the key to being humble. All things are put under his power, it says. It means John is making a very clear statement that Jesus is absolute ruler supreme. All things are put under his power. There is no one higher than Jesus. And John wants to make sure that we understand that. It says that he came from God and knew that he was returning to God. Kind of this idea of origins and destiny, right? Where you came from and where you're headed. They stand out uh, based on where he came from and where he was going. It gave him authority in this present moment right now. You see, here's a few things. I want to draw out a couple of thoughts about humility, and here's the first one. Humility serves out of not a low or high sense of self, but out of a right sense or a God sense of self. This is the how of humility. Servants serve. Even kings serve their nation. Pastors serve their church. Political leaders serve the people. And according to our scriptures, even God serves. Hillcrest, don't you know who you are? That you belong to God, that you are from him, and that you are headed towards him? You belong to God. A deep sense of origin and destiny should provide the right sense of self that should move us to live, uh, to live by the way of Jesus' example. So what are our convictions concerning our origins and our destiny? Because very clearly it shows that Jesus knew where he'd come and knew where he was going, and it empowered him 
in this moment. The same should be said of us, that our sense of origins, our origin story, our sense of destiny should play into how we live in the here and now. Here's a quote from some of the stuff I've come across. Being humble doesn't mean you have, you have to lack confidence or conviction, but it does mean that your understanding and desires are always placed in submission to God. Humility, God's way. I believe that humility is God's strategy for true servanthood. Next we see here that this act of foot washing, now it's kind of easily lost. Foot washing is easily lost on our culture because we just think it's plain gross, right? Anybody willing to let me wash your feet? Maybe the better question is who'd be willing to wash my feet? I've been a, you know, long-term fighting athlete's foot. I have some kind of nail fungus that has yet to be, you know, uh, identified, like who's, like, feet are gross. It's the reason why, it's the reason why my students, you know, wearing flip-flops or slip-ons, they still wear socks, right? Feet are gross. We just, we like clean feet. We like that to be clean. But in the first century, foot washing was a very common thing, both to the, the, the Greeks and the Romans, as well as to Jewish culture. You know, there was sort of this sense of a daily ritual of washing your feet, and it could have religious symbolism as you uh, would wash your feet as like a, a, a kind of a cleansing. Or it was a form of hospitality that as people came into your home, you would have someone wash their feet and get them ready. It was such a menial task that it was relegated to slaves of the day. In fact, Jewish slaves even got off the hook because it was such a, an un-kind of noble task that even the Jewish slaves didn't have to do it. It was relegated to Gentile slaves to do. It was demeaning and lowly, but yet it was something that had to get done. There is sort of evidence throughout history of other people washing other people's feet. Like, you know, a child would wash his father's feet, or a pupil would wash his teacher's feet, or even a wife would wash a husband's feet. We find that from sort of first century and later. But it's always a sign of of extreme devotion to them. Someone lower socially honoring someone higher. But we have Jesus here, the Almighty One, adopting the role of a slave and washing his disciples' feet. This shocked the disciples. Everyone knew that foot washing was a thing, but I'm sure that there were times that if you were in a scenario where you and your friends were getting together and there wasn't a slave in the midst or someone who the task could be relegated to, I think they just ate with dirty feet. I think they just were like, wow, I guess guess this is just the way that it is. And maybe it happened that night on the Last Supper where the disciples gathered together and they all looked around going, well, who is going to... And they were all sort of like, well, there's no way I'm doing that. And yet Jesus steps into that place, delegated to a slave, and he serves. It's a, it's a crazy, surprising act. Think of if you came out one morning and you were surveying your property... And you'd look in the front yard, and if there was, you know, a Burger King bag or something blown onto your front lawn, you would pick that up because, you know, you want the front of your house to look nice. If it's in the backyard, you might ask one of your kids to grab the garbage that had blown in and pick it up, right? If you look into your alley and the garbage that's back there, most of us just say, I'll hit it with the lawnmower, right? We'll just say, we'll get that into little pieces and it'll be gone. We're kind of, we're less likely, you know. But what if you looked in your alley and there 
Queen Elizabeth was there with a garbage poker sticker, and he was, she was picking up the garbage out of your alley. Well, man, what would you, wouldn't you, wouldn't you want to rush and stop her and be like, this is so below your station. I'm so sorry that this wasn't cleaned. Please come, sit, like don't stop what you're doing. Please don't do this. I've got that. Well, I kind of think that it was something like of that sort of shock value to the disciples as to what was going on. And we get some insight into this, that Jesus isn't just doing an act of servanthood, but that there's actually something much deeper taking place. He's actually wanting to say something really specific and show his disciples something really specific. And we get to that because next, he moves on to wash Simon Peter's feet. Verse 6, he he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Again, this is an astonishing act, and Peter's a little bit up in arms, and Jesus says, hey, you know what? You don't really realize what it is that I'm going to do for you. You don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. Do you catch Jesus' remark there? First, he acknowledges where we're at, that the significance of this moment is lost on us, that we don't actually comprehend what he's doing. But two, he makes us a promise that we will understand, and I, don't, I think that his, his promise to Peter in this section isn't talking about in 15 minutes later when I tell you and explain this event, you're going to get it. I actually think that Jesus is signifying something deeper, saying it's not going to be until I rise from the dead, until you've grieved my loss and celebrated my return, that you're actually going to understand the significance of this moment. And classy Peter here in verse 8, he has a hard time trusting Jesus with this. And this is to our benefit, because Peter says no. He says, no, you shall never wash my feet. Have you ever been there? Have you ever said no to the Lord? How did that work out for you? I recall, and I won't go into the story, but I recall a specific time in my life where I felt the Lord strong leading on a certain decision, and I said No, I'm just going to see where this goes. And it was four years before I was back to the same place where in humility I hit my knees and just said, Lord, I missed the boat. I'm so sorry. I want to change that no to a yes. Peter says no. But Jesus isn't content to just leave Peter at his no. He, He gets that Peter has some wrong understanding of what's going on here. So he wants to press the point. And Jesus simply says, Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Unless I wash you, you have no part in me. What is going on here? As I read this, if I'm honest, like, I kind of see this like, I picture a playground and I picture kids And I picture one saying, you know, do this or I won't be your friend no more. That's kind of how I read it. But clearly that's not what's going on. This isn't a playground dispute. So what does Jesus mean by Peter not having a part in him? Well, it's important to pay attention to what he said. He says, unless I wash you. That it's Jesus doing the washing. A washing that only Jesus can do. No part with me. It's important that we all have a part with Jesus. 
And this lines up with what the other gospel writers say too. Through their meal and their last supper, right? They're, they're sharing the breaking of bread and the, and the new covenant in Jesus' blood. And it's all about having a part, having a stake in Jesus. And John just comes at it a bit of a different way with this idea of washing. It's clear too that this invitation to be a part of Jesus is just that. It's an invitation. You have the option of whether to choose it or not. It seems like Jesus is asking Peter, unless I wash you, this is the reality, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. So what, is, what will be your choice? And thankfully, Peter now Having more clarity, he relents and he says, Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and head as well. Typical Peter fashion, right? Going over and above. And I can't imagine how, you know, the other disciples who were there and had quietly let Jesus sort of wash their feet. And it comes to Peter and they overhear this exchange. And then Peter's requesting for his hands and and head and feet and everything to get washed. And they're like, oh, he just washed their feet. But then Jesus clarifies here in verse 10. He simply says, Those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean. And I'm going I'm to stop there. I know there's more in that verse. But did you catch that? Jesus declares Peter clean. He knows those who are his. And that if you're fully clean, you only need your feet to be washed. The daily grime that gets on there to be washed off. Which, this is a beautiful picture because Jesus is just now doing that. He's just now washing the the, the dirt that has gotten on the disciples' feet. And so, we see that Jesus' foot washing plays on two levels. Yes, absolutely, it's a a model, um, an example of what true servanthood looks like. To take the lowest role and to be willing to do it. Jesus, who is high, serves low willingly. But also there's this symbolic act that points to the spiritual cleansing that comes from receiving the washing that only Jesus can do because of his death and resurrection from the cross. Well, next, John ties us back into sort of this intrigue with the betrayal. He says, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he'd said not everyone was clean. It's really neat um, how John kind of unpacks this, because it sort of has it introduced it as sort of like John's commentating that b- there's a betrayer in their midst. And then here's the first indication that Jesus sort of identifies, yep, not everyone is clean. And then if you will, we'll just jump down to verses 18 and 19 because it makes most sense to address it here. Here it says, Jesus, this is after he's given a bit of an explanation about his foot washing, he simply says, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Jesus points it out himself now, specifically, he knows that he'll be betrayed. But he says it, that even though I know this, that I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to let it happen. So that after it happens, you'll know that I called it. 
And the phrase that Jesus himself used, that you'll know I am who I am, is pointing back to sort of who God introduces himself to Moses on, on, the, on Mount Sinai, saying, I am who I am. I am. And Jesus is claiming those words as his own. So this is, this is a powerful moment for his disciples. What would that experience have been like for Jesus to wash Judas' feet knowing that Judas did not believe in him or misunderstood him or was about to betray him. Serving him in that way was the ultimate act of love. And here's another thing it reveals to us about humility. Humility serves those who get it and those who don't. This is the who of humility. You know, it's easy to serve those who get it other Christians, people in your family that you know, if you serve them, that it's going to come around, that they're, they're going to love you back, they're going to serve you back. But Jesus served all. In humility, he was willing to sacrifice for those who would get it and who would reject it. It's a different kind of love that serves those who are willing to reject it or take advantage of it. It's a God kind of love. And that's what Jesus is demonstrating to his disciples. We move on to verse 12, back to verse 12 now, where it says, um, When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asks them. It's a powerful question for both the disciples to consider and us. Do we understand what Jesus has done for us? Jesus goes on, he says, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that is what I am. Now I, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Very truly I tell you that no... uh, No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Verse 17, he says, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I was actually taken back when I read these verses for the first time as I got ready for this because I felt like these verses perfectly sum up all that our Believe series has been about. That... Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Do you catch that? That Jesus in this moment, he says, now that you understand what I've done for you, that I being Lord and all power being under me have washed your feet, you will be blessed. There is blessing in doing it, in acting on it. You know, we've been sort of talking a lot about um, sort of this, the linear fashion of what this belief series is always meant to do. That, you know, at first we studied the first, the top 10 beliefs of the Christian faith, going, these are the important things to have right and to believe. And I got to be honest with you, and this doesn't bode well for a sermon on humility, but I rocked that section, okay? Rocked it. I mean it. Like, belief stuff, I'm like, yes, those are the right things to believe, and I believe them. And I memorized, you know, the key questions, the key ideas, and the key verses. I rocked it, okay? Had the belief down. Moved on to act. Now, these practices of our Christian faith, the top 10, the stuff that we're meant to do, the stuff we're meant to lean into, and I rocked it a little less, 
But I still figure I did pretty good. I go, yeah, I understand these things like worship and prayer and giving and sharing our faith and these things. I, I get how they're important. And I was like, I, I didn't do quite as good. I mean, I still memorized them, got most of them, but it was, it was a little less, a little less. It wasn't that great. Then we hit the fruit, the virtues of the Christian life. And am I all alone or did the rest of you go like, oh man, this is heavy. Like I'm not doing well at these. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, humility. I was like, oh man, like I'm not getting this. I'm not rocking this. But it's important that we think not just as a linear fashion. <laughs> it's important that we understand that these things really are cyclical, that there's, there's a, a process of transformation that takes place. And I'd like to, I'd like to read, um, Randy Frazee has done a, sort of a, a it complements sort of the belief, and it's simply titled, Think, Act, Be Like Jesus. In, in it, he kind of describes what I'm trying to get at here. He says, to use another example, let's consider a person who lacks the virtue of humility. Okay? This will likely be someone who lacks the belief in their identity in Christ. Let me explain. When we become Christians through faith in Christ, we are taught that we become children of God and heirs of God's kingdom in Romans 8, 17. Therefore, we are significant because of our position as a child of God. That is the statement from identity in Christ. People who lack humility often brag about their achievements and their associations with others. They often do this to gain significance. This lack of humility signals the absence of this particular Christian belief in the braggart's internal life. If the believer wants to grow in the virtue of humility, which is essential for healthy community, they will need to focus on the belief of their identity in Christ. He goes on to say, and I'm just about done here, he says, the concepts Christ and his apostles ask us to believe are the nutrients that produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives for others to taste. For every virtue God wants to display on the outside of our lives, there must be at least one corresponding belief stirring inside, stirring within us. Inside produces outside. Fruit starts with the vine, unseen before it emerges. If it isn't stirring within, the fruit will never mature and ripen on the branches of our lives for others' sake. I love the way that he puts that, the way that it kind of completes the cycle, that if we're noticing a lack of fruit, it's because there's a lack of belief and trust. And so in so many ways that I'm like so glad to be done our 30-week series that, you know, close the book, put it on the shelf, I realize the Spirit of God is challenging me with something else. As I've gone through the virtues and the fruit and realizing their own, you know, bitterness or how they're sour, it's not quite ripe yet in my life, I realize that there's still this work of transformation that needs to take place within me of getting the beliefs of what I believe about who I am before God deep into my soul so that it changes and transforms who I am. The last thing on humility, and I, I won't jump into this because our time is getting away, but that I notice about these ver verses um, that John is liking it. Remember, there's that little bit about a messenger that a servant is not above his master. Uh, the messenger isn't above the one who sends him. Later on in verse 20, he simply says, very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. 
And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And here's my conclusion about humility. Humility serves in order to share the love of God and the good news of who Jesus is. This is the why of humility. You see, Jesus didn't just have a humble moment where he was just being a humble guy and so he did this humble thing that just meant to be in and of itself. His moment with Peter shows us that there's a deeper meaning behind his act of humility. It's telling a greater story. It's telling the story of the cleansing that comes only through Jesus Christ. Jesus' humble act was to point them in the direction of the full extent of his love, his death on the cross. That his sacrifice alone is enough to wash away the filth of their sin and their shame. This is the good news that we as believers have the opportunity to share. But humility gets at the way we share it. Do we share because we're asked to? So that telling is a reflection of our obedience? Or do we share the good news out of a sense of their best interests for them? You see, I honestly believe that sometimes evangelism can be done out of a sense of serving our own self-interests. Proving ourselves to God. Increasing our value. But that's not humility. That's not the heart of why we share the gospel. The full extent of his love Christ shared. I feel like there's some verses from Paul in Philippians that really summarize this. And so I'll read this and... uh, yeah, and then I'll, I'll close in prayer shortly, but I feel like Paul really gets at, um, at the heart of this. Here we go. It says, uh, Philippians 2, verses 1 to 4, and our, our key verses for humility are found within this chunk. It says, this is Paul speaking, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking out for your own interests, but each of you the interests of others. Humility is receiving God's provision for us in Jesus and then being moved by his love love for us towards others where we share Christ out of love for them because we know this is in their best interests. Jesus was moved by love and that love, expelled, that love expressed itself in radical, generous humility towards others. And I believe that God is calling us to do the same to be moved by the extent of his love for us to reach other people with the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time that we had this morning to spend in your word. We thank you for the way that it challenges and inspires and moves us. And so God, I pray that we wouldn't be moved simply out of a sense of wanting to be, to obey, to have check marks to check, but Lord, that we would really be moved by your love this morning on how you, being all-powerful, the supreme ruler, humbled himself to serve and save us. 
We thank you for your sacrifice, Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that that would stir us and transform us to be humble as we love and reach out to others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us this morning for our service. And uh, Laura's here, so please, if you get a chance to honor her and chat with her and just thank her so much for her years and years of service. Now, we've got to be clear. She's not actually going anywhere. She's staying in our midst, but we want to honor her well so you can have the uh, opportunity to do that. And as well, we're still under guidelines and restrictions, so as you go, please respect sort of social distancing uh, as you dismiss. And uh, yeah, bless you. Have a phenomenal week. God bless.